Man, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be picking it up there. And, and honestly, we're just going to jump in here this morning and, and give it a go. So would you stand with me now and let's turn our attention to the Word of God. This is Genesis chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read, uh, well, we're going to read the whole chapter here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here today in your presence. We thank you that you have promised to be here with us. We've just, as we've talked about with the children already, that you are everywhere. So, so you don't need us to be here, but you have welcomed us into worship. You've called us into worship. Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue faithfully in worship now as we turn to your word. Would you speak to us that we might hear? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis 5 is, well, 
I mean, it's sort of the inverse or the opposite of Genesis 4. Like if you were here with us uh, last week, you might remember that in Genesis 4, we saw how Cain uh, killed his brother and how the generations that followed in his family, those generations tracking down, just got progressively worse and worse. It was just, it really was just straight downhill until we got to that seventh generation from Adam. Uh, and we met this guy named Lamech. Now, that's not the same Lamech that we met today. Uh, why in the beginning of time they had to use the same names is beyond me, but evidently they loved the name Lamech. And Lamech for last week in chapter 4 was the worst. All right? He's just a terrible, terrible person. Had a couple of wives. Just want to be straight. That was not a good move on his part. And the sort of crescendo of his life, right, was him singing to those two wives, bragging about, boasting about in this little song uh, about how he had killed a young man, about how he had killed a kid. This is what really got Lamech going in the morning. He was able to boast about murdering a child. He's just a terrible, terrible human being, okay? There's no remorse. There's no repentance, no sense of shame, no sense of guilt. He's just bragging about how evil it is. And so it's pretty clear in chapter 4 that Lamech is, is a bad guy. But now in chapter 5, in chapter 5, we, we follow the line that started, that extended from Adam's son, uh, Seth. And there's a lot of repetition in this, right? I mean, you just read it with me. Other than trying to say Mahalalel without getting your tongue tied, there's a lot of repetition in that one. There's sort of, a, there's sort of an order to it, a formula to it that we start seeing there in verse 3. Look at that with me real quick. We'll, we'll see this formula where we read that when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. I mean, that's basically the formula that you see run all through chapter 5. We kind of joked this morning as we were uh, in here praying before worship that if you do a Bible reading plan every year, Genesis 5 is really the first chapter that you're tempted to just kind of skip over, right? You get to it and you're like, I don't care who had who and how long they lived. And, and I, can you imagine living, I mean, poor Methuselah lived how many, 969 years? I mean, the poor guy, can you imagine at 967, the guy's trying to get around? I mean, you just kind of skip over this part. It's just this little thing. Chapter 5 is just kind of thrown in there and you get to it and you go, man, I, just, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with this. How am I supposed to get some nugget of, of inspiration out of this for the day? And every one of these, every single one of them, they end with three words, all right? And he died. So that's like the, that's like the refrain for each one. It's why we sort of fly through Genesis 5. We fly through Genesis 5 so we get to Noah and the flood, right? That's where we get to the good stuff, right? Because it seems boring. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 905 years and he died. Canaan lived 910 years and he died. Mahalalel, who has terrified me all week of trying to say that name in front of y'all, if I can just be honest with you. Mahalalel, I think I'm saying it right, lived 895 years and he died. Jared lived 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 365 years and he, what? Yeah, look at verse 24. See, it tempts you into it. You think Enoch probably just died too, but Enoch didn't just die. That's not what it says. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
You see, Enoch stands out in this passage. If you're not careful, you'll just assume that he's just like all the other boys listed here and that he died. But Enoch stands out. In the middle of this song, Enoch, Enoch is the drum solo, all right? He's the one that stands. He's the guy just with the big bass drop, right? In the rhythm and cadence of this passage, in this list of the generations leading us to Noah. And we need to be clear on that. This is not a comprehensive family tree here, all right? That's not what Genesis 5 is. You're not going, here's everybody that you need to know about. This is a straight line being drawn to Noah. It doesn't list out every branch, and in each one we find they had other sons and daughters. So it's not an exhaustive list of every human born in this family. We need to know that. This is a line being drawn, chapter 5 is a line being drawn in redemptive history that is going to take us straight to a guy called Noah down in verse 30. And Noah is going to end up being pretty important in human history, right? But here in chapter 5, it's this guy called Enoch who really stands out. He's sort of like, he's sort of like where's Waldo a little bit in this, right? You remember those books? I still remember the first time I was like at the orthodontist when my sister was getting, getting braced and I had to sit there for like two hours while that's happening. And I found, I discovered the, the majesty that is the where's Waldo book as a kid, right? And you, you, for hours, you start staring at that and you try and find him. That's kind of how this is. You've got all of these names, all of these different generations, everything just sort of blends together, overlapping and covering each other up. But Enoch stands out as unique, all right? He's the one with the striped shirt. He's got the glasses and the funny hat. He's the different one here. And this is deliberate. It's intentional. The other people are important. I'm not saying the other characters in the story aren't important. They're just as important because they are, they're not just nameless faces in the crowd. They're all, they're all made in the likeness of God. Every single one of them created and blessed by God. But he's the one who stands out here, not because he's the hero, but because of who he's going to point us to. You see, that's what makes Enoch stand out. It isn't his name. There's an Enoch actually over on Cain's side too. If you remember back in chapter 4, even Cain had an Enoch, not the same guy. What makes him stand out isn't his family line. There's a whole bunch of names listed here. Now, the thing that stands out about Enoch, what causes him to stand out to us, even among those in this godly line from Seth, is encapsulated in the singular statement, Enoch walked with God. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We found Waldo, okay? We see the one who stands out. We, we find this seventh generation from Adam who just happens to be the same generation as the dirty Lamech from, from, from chapter four, right? And now we're asking what in the world it means. We should be asking ourselves as we read through this and he stands out, what in the world does it mean to walk with God? That's what Genesis 5 is doing. That's really all it's doing. It's, it's presenting an idea to us, <clears throat> an idea that the rest of Scripture is going to flesh out. It's the spiritual gift, the spiritual discipline of walking with God. And we're going to focus on here this morning, all right? This is our focus. It's not five steps to walking well, I promise you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to give you a pamphlet on the way out here. If you do these five things, and you will, you will guarantee that you walk with God. If you do your quiet time before the sun comes up, and if you journal every night before you go to sleep, that's not what's going to happen here this morning. We don't get those details from Enoch, and I'm not going to tell you more than what the Bible tells you about it. That's not what this is. 
It's not five more steps to a comfortable life. That's not it. Now, to be fair, there are some practical steps that we can take in walking with God. Can we just be straight about that? Like a lot of times, if we're not careful, we kind of, we kind of think of the Christian faith as a sort of belief in abstraction, belief up in the air. Like we believe it, but it doesn't really impact life here on earth. It's one of the dangerous things we see in the church a lot is we tend to compartmentalize the faith uh, side of our lives into like a little Sunday corner, right? Like we'll pack it over there on that, that first day of the week. But the outworking of true Christian faith is intensely close to the ground. All right, the Bible doesn't speak at any point of life apart from the world, uh, at least not nearly as much as it speaks of life here in the world. In fact, what the Bible largely does and what Christians are called to do, what you and I are called to do as followers of Christ is to see the world exactly as it is through the lens of uh, what the world was meant to be, what the world could be, and therefore what the world should be. This is the calling on us. That's why Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet. We know the one who made it hasn't left us here alone, right? We know that God is still in the game. And so what we're looking at here this morning is we consider this habit and this lifestyle of walking with God, this way of life as we're looking at what it means to walk in holiness. To walk in holiness and that's a word that we are pretty comfortable with in the church, right? Now, we don't use holiness outside of the church anywhere. Like if you start using holiness, which really, which really has a whole bunch of connotations, if you go into a business meeting this, work, this week and say, you know, we really need to treat this project with the holiness that it deserves, you're probably going to get some looks. I mean, we don't typically do it. Now, if you do that in the church, if I went, hey, we're about, to, we're about to do a worship service, we need to treat this with the holiness and reverence it deserves, everybody goes, yeah, of course, you're supposed to say that. But we don't use that word a lot out of here. But we throw it around a lot in the church, right? We sing it, we pray it, holy, 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 but holiness isn't just a word. Holiness is a status. And his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, which is basically about walking with God, J.I. Packer says this. He says that holiness means being near God, like God, given to God, and pleasing God. That was a fast definition there. It says being near God, like God, given to God, and pleasing God. That's a weighty definition of holiness. It's the idea of being fully and completely unto and for God being set apart for God. It means being with God, or as we see it here, walking with God. You know, when you walk with someone, if you pay attention, you'll find pretty quickly that, uh, that your steps begin to mirror one another. You'll see this. If you ever follow like a couple walking down the beach, you'll see like their steps end up kind of just stepping together. This is what happens. And then what you'll discover if, if, you, if you pay attention is that one of the people becomes the pace setter all the time. Like there's always somebody who kind of sets the pace. That's why when you're walking through the parking lot with a kid, like you're constantly having to go and come on, like, like come on. Anybody, anybody walking through Target parking lot, and you're like, come on. It's one of the great things about when your kids learn to walk. It's also one of the most frustrating things, right? Because now they have to walk. And, and so you don't get to just put them in the stroller or whatever. But you're constantly having to say, come on. It's because, because a lot of the time uh, they're with you, but they aren't really with you. you. You know that you know that sense? Like they're here, but they're not really here. I mean their feet are moving, but they aren't really they aren't really in it. And I think that's sometimes how we think of the Christian walk. 
Like we think of it as God the Father sort of pulling and and prodding us to, to keep up with him. And that's definitely something that a good father does, right? I don't walk into the store and go, I hope he makes it. I mean, that just wouldn't be, that would, especially not, to be honest with you, especially not in Lexington traffic. I mean, they wouldn't make it through the weekend, right? Uh, if you walk into this Target over here without dodging a couple of cars, you have, you're there at the wrong time. You probably ought to check your watch. But this is just how it works. So you're kind, it wouldn't be good of me as a father to go, all right, get out of the car and I'll see you in there. It's not how we do it. So God does do that. It's definitely something he does. We have to be told to speed up. We have to be told to slow down. We have to be reminded to look left and right. And that's what God does for us in his word. That's the loving part of of discipline and care of any good father. But that's not all there is. That's not the extent of it. And really what what the God of the Bible is after What he's after is not a relationship of pulling us begrudgingly along with him. He's not dragging us through the parking lot. But he's after a relationship of us walking with him in step toward his aim and toward his purpose for us. That's what we see in Enoch. It's what God wants for us. Holiness is what God wants for us. And I promise I'm not just making this up. You're like, whatever, man. You're stuck on one verse, actually like four words, and you're trying to make a sermon out of that this week. I see what you're doing here. I promise I'm not. All right, so here we go. Over in 1 Peter 1.15, I'm going to go fast through these. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write them down and check for yourself, I promise not making this up. 1 Peter 1.15, we're told that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. By the way, Peter is quoting uh, Leviticus 11.44 when he says that. And the idea there is purity. It's to be holy, to be pure. That's that's God's desire for us. Such such that there will be no sin, there'd be no distraction, there would be no shame, there would be no pain, no guilt, there'd be no animosity standing between us and our Heavenly Father. That's the aim of personal holiness, that there'd be nothing between us, that the curtains that we have put up between us and God, that they would be ripped in half, that the dividing walls that we build with our sin would be torn down, they'd be broken and scattered, so there'd be nothing separating us from God, that we would have the freedom and joy of actually walking with God. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7, and you can check this one out later, it's a little longer. It says, for this is the will of God. This is a pretty concise statement here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, we've talked about that with the kids up here a couple of times. It's one of those great words that we love to throw around in the Reformed faith, another one that we never use anywhere else. But to be sanctified in the faith is to become more and more like Jesus. All right, so here is the will of God, your sanctification, that you, and here he gives a list that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That this is what God has called us into. The Bible's going, here is God's desire for you. You've ever wondered, what does God want for me, right? Have you ever been, I don't know what God's really leading me to do. He's leading you towards holiness. 
He's leading you towards holiness. It's not, it's not that you can, can do it on your own. It's not that you are inherently holy and awesome, right? But, this is, but that this is God's desire for you. And so it doesn't matter what city you're in. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter how much you make in a year. It doesn't matter if you're married or single or whether you have babies running around or not. It doesn't, none of that matters. It's that first and foremost, wherever and whenever you would be holy. That's God's desire for you, that you would be holy. This is what Ephesians 1.4 says, that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. This is why you were chosen. It's why God looked at you and said, this one is mine. That before the foundations of the earth, that mark was put on you that he was going to claim you as his own to be holy and blameless. That's that idea of purity again. And just one more, okay? In Romans 12, 1, Paul says this to the church there, to the Christians gathered together in Rome, just like we're gathered here today. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what we're called to bring to our relationship with God, that we're called to bring ourselves holy and acceptable to God. On this, Packer says, in relation to God, holiness takes the form of a single-minded passion to please by love and loyalty, devotion and praise. By love and loyalty, devotion and praise. It's that in this world of limitless distractions, in a world that constantly calls out with a thousand other priorities, that, certain, that, that constantly dings. Anybody else just feel like their, light, like their pocket is constantly shaking or you constantly hear a ding and you have to respond to it? Like In a world that is constantly and perpetually shaking and dinging and calling out to us, it's that we would be single-minded in our pursuit of holiness. For so many of us, I don't want to say that, for me, it is so easy for my priorities to get all out of whack so quickly. And for many of us, it's, it's falling into the trap of, of what has come to be called the undisciplined pursuit of more. The undisciplined pursuit of more. More what? Literally everything. This is the culture in which we find ourselves today. What do you need more of? Everything. We've been convinced that when in doubt, just get more. Just buy one more. Just eat one more. Just build one more. Just watch one more. I want you to think about the fact that the idea of binge-watching TV shows is a new thing that's developed in the last five years. Like, if you said that to my grandmother, she'd think you'd lost your mind. How are you going to binge-watch them? Right? Well, you just hit the little button, and it pops up and says, next episode, and before you know it, eight hours are gone. <laughs> right? I mean, like, I, you remember when you said, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, you know, I went to a movie. Now it's like, I watched The Office. Oh, really? What episode did you watch? No, just, I watched the whole thing from start to finish. I didn't do anything else. I literally didn't leave my bedroom. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, like, how sad is that that we're in that culture today? 
In his book, Essentialism, Greg McCown asked, uh, asked what it would look like to live. Here's the question. If society encouraged us to reject what has been accurately described as doing things we detest, to buy things we don't need, with money we don't have, to impress people we don't like. Thanks. I'm not willing to wait and count on society to be the people who are going to push us in that direction. But what if the church did that? What if we rejected the idea of constantly needing more, better, and faster, and instead embraced an idea of contentment in God and resting in the mercy of Jesus Christ? You see, this is where holiness comes into our relationship with sin. We see how holiness brings freedom and openness into our relationship with God. It brings unity and devotion and, and true praise and worship, but it also brings, holiness also brings angst and tension into our relationship with sin. And we should recognize, right, that, that nearly all sin, nearly all sin flows out of a spirit of unholy discontentment. That's what we saw in the garden. So we saw in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, right? I'm not having to make, we can go back two chapters and we see this happen. There was, there was this doubt in Eve's heart. And, and obviously the man who stood by her like a goon while the whole thing played out, he's standing there going, yeah, I think maybe there is something better for us. Maybe we should eat this fruit. It was a doubting of the promises and provision of God. He had, he had given them, God had given them everything that they needed. <laughs> And more. But still doubt and discontentment came into their hearts. A doubt that cried out that there must be something better, something more, and I want it. But a pursuit of holiness demands a break with sin. If we don't dance with it, we don't flirt with it, we don't try to hide it, don't try to tame it, we don't laugh at it. Now, the demand of holiness is clear and simple as it relates to sin. It's that we kill it. It's that you and I, as followers of Christ, with a, with, a, with a holy affection for him, now begin to see sin for what it is, and we wage war against it. Again, Packer says, in relation to sin, it takes the form of a resistance movement. I love that. That our battle as Christians with sin takes the form of a resistance movement, a discipline of not gratifying the desires of the flesh, but putting to death the deeds of the body. This is Galatians 5.16. That's where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, those two don't play well together. Sin and holiness do not mix. And for the believer, all right, if you call upon the name of Jesus in your life, for the disciple of Christ, there is no place for sin. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. I heard one Bible teacher say that the, the place for a ship is in the sea, right? That seems natural. The place for a ship is in the sea, but, if the shi- but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. You know what he's saying there? He says, it's great. The, the boat sits on the sea. It's fine. But when the sea comes into it, we have Titanic. We've hit the iceberg and there's a problem. It's the same with us. We're in the world, but God help us if the world gets into us. 
It's when we start to look like the world, when we start to, let's just be real here, when we start to budget like the world, when we start to pursue the things of the world, when we start to watch everything that the world puts out there and assume that it's good for us, that's when we start to look like the world. And that's when our relationship with God begins to suffer. That's why James would say in James 4, 4, that that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He takes that word from Genesis 3, that word enmity, and he applies it to us here today. And that's the opposite of what we see with Enoch, who's described here with the simple words, Enoch walked with God. What if that was what the world said about us? What if that was what other believers said about the people of this church? I mean, I want to be specific. I'm not preaching to every church in the world. I'm preaching to you today. What if that is what the world said about us? What if that's what other churches said about us? We don't know about them. We don't know about that ghetto-looking building. We don't know how their music is, but we know that those people walk with God. They don't have to know every detail, right? I don't know where they work. I don't know how many kids they have. I don't know what sort of grades those kids make, but I can tell you that those people walk with God. You know, my prayer this week has been really simple. That's one of the beautiful things about Scripture. It kind of simplifies everything. My prayer life, like probably a lot of y'all, gets all distracted. I sit down to pray, and a thousand things swarm my mind, and I get all, all bent out of shape, and I get all frustrated, and I start, then I start trying to fix it rather than praying about it, if I'm being honest with you. I think about all the things that are wrong with me and the world, and as I'm praying, I start trying to come up with a solution rather than leaving it at God's feet. But the prayer this week was pretty simple. It's that, it's that we would be a people who walk with God. That we'd be a people who pursue holiness in our lives to the degree that the only explanation, the only explanation of the life people see is because we're walking in step with the God who has saved us. That's my prayer for this church. The story goes of a Scottish minister. Uh, you've probably heard of Robert Murray McShane. His Bible reading plan is like the most famous one out there. Then when he was asked to complete this sentence, here's, here's the sentence he was asked to complete. Complete the sentence. My people's greatest need. That's the sentence. Finish that sentence. My, he's talking to a pastor, asking him, what is your people? Finish this sentence. My people's greatest need. And, and he didn't say, he didn't respond by saying they need better preaching even though he was a really, really good preacher. He didn't respond by saying they need better programs. He didn't, say they, he didn't respond by saying, well, they need a multi-purpose center on campus. They need a better youth director. Or they need a better music minister. Or they need a better whatever. He didn't respond with any of that. When asked about the greatest need of the believers in his church, McShane finished the sentence by saying, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. You know, it's the same for us today. It's the same for every father and mother in this room. Your children's greatest need is your personal holiness. It's the same for every boss or employee. It's the same for every student in this room. Is that the witness of your life would align with the witness of your lips. That what you do would match up with what you claim. This is how we point the world to Jesus. It's not through protest, man. It's not through, it's not through arguments. It's through a life of walking with God. But I do want to caution you. 
Walking with God does not mean that the world is going to think you're awesome. Listen, nobody, nobody walked more closely with God than Jesus did. In fact, it was, it was the intimacy of his walk with God that ultimately led him straight to the cross. It wasn't sin that sent Jesus to the cross. It was his holiness. Remember, he brought no sin to the cross. The only sin he carried to the cross was our sin that made it necessary. It was his holiness at the cross that paid for our sin, for our sin here in the world. It was his holiness that is given to us by his grace. You can't just become a holy person. I mean, I promise you, if you write down on your notes today, be holy this week, it is not going to go well. You can, put all, you can use an entire batch of sticky notes in your house, put them everywhere. Be holy this week on your phone. Be holy. Your message when it wakes you up, be holy. That's not, maybe not be a bad idea, but if you try to do this by tightening your shoes and getting to work, it's going to be really difficult. Primarily, you're going to pursue holiness by pursuing trust, by laying your life down with Christ. That's how Enoch points us to Jesus. This is how this man in Genesis 5 points you and I to Jesus. It's not because he was perfect. It's because he was faithful. May that be true of us. Let it be said of you and me that they walked with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's not a complicated prayer, but it certainly is a difficult way of life. And so we need your spirit to strengthen us in this. We pray, we, we, would, we would beg you now to send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Lord, if we're still far from you, I pray that you would come and, and open our eyes that we might see you, that we might catch a glimpse this morning. If we've called upon your name and we're trying to walk with you, Lord, I pray that you would, you would remind us that you have said you'll never walk alone, that you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, you haven't failed us, and according to your word, you have no plans to do that. So help us to remember that this week. It's not just for the kids, man. It's not just for the kids to know they're never alone. God, we're never alone because we're in you. Help us to walk this week by faith. Help us to trust in you. Help us to seek you. Help us to get in step with you. Lord, make us holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.